Thanks, Vince. Um, can I get a show of hands, just as we start? How many of you are here for the first time at a Theology of the Pub event? A few of you? Okay, great. Um, and how many of you have, in your lifetime at least once, been to all of the ceremonies of Holy Week or the Easter Triduum? Okay. It's about half. That's, that's not bad. Um, how many of you have never been to any of the Easter ceremonies in the Catholic Church before? Okay, one. That's good. Hopefully after tonight we might get you to one. Um, so just as we begin, I suppose two things. One, um, I'm, not a, I'm not a theologian and I'm not a historian um, and I'm not a, a liturgist. I'm a parish priest um, and I'm a pragmatist. So I suppose the talk this evening will come from, from that perspective, that this is what we do and this is the, the, the faith of the church that's been presented to us at this time and the church asks us to do certain things and this is what we're doing. And I'm going to un try and unpack that for you a little bit on a really practical level because if we don't have a, a full understanding or grasp of what it is that we're called to do, we're not very likely to do it. So hopefully tonight we'll encourage you a little bit to, as we, we draw closer to Holy Week, um, enter into the ceremonies of Holy Week and in particular the Easter Triduum a little more deeply this year. The second, I suppose, frame of reference that I speak from is that I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I'm going to now encourage you this year to go to all three ceremonies, but I myself didn't go to the entire Easter Triduum until the year before I went to the seminary. It was the first time I ever experienced the Easter ceremonies in their entirety. The first time I ever attended an Easter vigil was the year before I went to the seminary. So I suppose um, I came to these things a little bit late myself. We grew up, or I grew up in a uh, on and off practicing Catholic family. Um, we were Catholics and we went to Catholic schools. Holy Thursday was our Easter celebration. Every year we'd go to Holy Thursday and then at the end of Holy Thursday Mass we would pack ourselves in the car and we'd drive to our caravan at the beach and we wouldn't go to any of the other ceremonies until we would stand in the back of, of the church at Lawn on Easter Sunday for some crowded Easter Sunday Mass. So I suppose, yeah, my experience of coming to the ceremonies uh, came quite late and then I suppose I, I had the great pleasure as a seminarian of participating for a number of years in the ceremonies at St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I think when we're talking about liturgy, we've got to find this balance because there's a difference sometimes between what the church asks and what we might get in our ordinary parish church. And that's a bit of a, uh, a balancing act sometimes. And some of that is really practical. Some really practical things about music and architecture and electricity, we'll come back to electricity later on. But these things sort of affect how we get liturgy. So I suppose you hear from me this evening, hopefully the ideal, and it's not a commentary on places, even my own parish, where we don't meet that ideal. But we strive for the ideal. So I suppose if you are mobile and young and free this year, I'd encourage maybe 
attending the liturgy or some of the liturgy at somewhere like St. Patrick's Cathedral, where you can see it done, I suppose, in its, its, its splendor. So as we start tonight and we're going to look at the liturgies of Holy Week in particular and the Easter Triduum, we need to look at them in the context of where we've come or how we're coming into these liturgies, which of course is the period of time in the church that's called Lent. So I just want you to have a really quick chat with the people on your table or who you're here with tonight about what, what are the markers of our, our Lenten liturgy? What makes our liturgy in these last 40 days different to any other time of the year? There's about four or five things that you should be able to identify that's made Sunday Mass a little bit different for the last few weeks. Have a chat. Buzz. One thing I learned very early in my priesthood was that you should never ask prep students a rhetorical question during a homily because prep students don't quite understand what a rhetorical question is and they'll sit there throughout the rest of your homily with their hand in their ear trying to answer a question that didn't need to be answered in the first place. Um, the second thing I've learned now is maybe don't, in a room, a crowded pub, sort of give young people license to talk because you may never get them back. Um, so, who, who knows some of the, the markers of our Easter liturgies? How, how has our Sunday Mass been a little bit different over the last few weeks as we've been part of the Lenten celebration? I can tell you or someone can shout something out. We don't say the Gloria. We haven't been saying the Gloria. Very good. So, the Gloria has been removed from the Sunday Mass. No Alleluia. No Alleluia. Very good. Some people don't even say it in a pub, but I think we're okay. So we haven't been using the Alleluia, except if you were at my place a few weeks ago in the choir and he sings once every six weeks. They didn't get the memo, so we launched into the Alleluia. But anyway, it's <laughs> around so saying we've got ideals and then we've got the reality of where most of us live. Okay, so no Alleluia, no Gloria. What else? Purple. Purple. So we've been using the colour purple, reminder of the penitential season. And rose as well. If you were in a church last weekend, you would have got some rose. Anything else? No flowers. Thank you. No flowers. So we often get questions, are you allowed to have weddings in Lent? And traditionally, there's nothing that stops you having weddings in Lent except for the fact that we're not allowed to have flowers during Lent. And most brides don't like to have weddings without flowers. And therefore, traditionally, brides haven't got married during the Lenten season. Also, when, as Catholics, we took penance just a little bit more seriously, and you wouldn't have been drinking beer or wine, most brides and grooms don't want wedding receptions that don't have beer or wine in them. So, but no flowers. So we could, you may have had some flowers in your church last weekend. So the fourth Sunday of Lent, we, we relax some of those disciplines as a little bit of a, a reminder about what's coming. No flowers, no Gloria, no Alleluia. Restrained music. The music during Lent is supposed to be a little restrained. Ideally, if you can carry it off, and again, this is the ideal, no instruments at all during the Lenten season. So a cappella singing. 
Now again, that takes for a really good choir and really good musicians. So we generally, we put them in, but our music is supposed to be marked by some solemnity and restraint. So that's our, our Lenten season, and then of course leads us into Holy Week, which begins, of course, with the great feast of Palm Sunday, that kicks off what we know as our holiest week of the year. And just like Sunday is the holiest day of our week, our entire year is led up to the celebration of Holy Week. And that week in our Christian life should be remarkably different to any of our other weeks. And again, this is a challenge if we have to go to work and when we live in a society that doesn't necessarily recognise or acknowledge our Christian faith. But you should be striving in a couple of weeks' time even if you have to work or study, but to be making that week, Holy Week, markedly different to any of the other weeks of the year. So we begin, of course, with Palm Sunday, and we traditionally will start, especially at one of the masses of your parish, outside the church. And Palm Sunday starts with the blessing of the palms, it's one of those masses where we have two Gospels. There's a Gospel reading outside the church, followed by the procession into the church. And then, of course, the reading of the solemn Passion. So it's also called Passion Sunday. It marks the beginning. And of course, and we'll get to this in a, um, a few minutes' time, by the time we get to whole, uh, Good Friday, we read the Passion again. So our week is bookended by two accounts of the Passion. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Holy Week are pretty blur. Like, they're holy and they're days of preparation, but liturgically speaking, there's not a lot going on until we move into Holy Thursday and the beginning of the Triduum. But the church on Holy Thursday actually gives us two masses and both of them are equally important. And the first Mass that is given is called either the Mass of the Oils or the Chrism Mass. And in most places, in most dioceses around the country, it's actually celebrated earlier in the week. So here in Melbourne, it's celebrated on the Tuesday of Holy Week. It's what we call translated to the Tuesday so that all the priests of the diocese can get together and celebrate together. And the Chrism Mass is significant for two key things, in particular for the priests. One is that they renew their priestly promises and vows. There, surrounded by their bishop or surrounded with a bishop, they recommit themselves to their priestly promises. And then at that Mass, surrounded by the priests of the diocese, the bishop blesses the oils that are used for the sacraments. So as Christians, as Catholics, we use three different oils for our sacraments. The first, the oil of catechumens, that's used to anoint children and adults who are preparing for baptism. The second is the oil of the sick, that priests use to anoint those who are, are, are gravely ill or who are dying. And the third is the oil of chrism, which is used on very few occasions in our church, and it's used for the ordination of priests or bishops 
for the consecration of churches, for the dedication of altars in churches, and on the day of baptism, and of course, at confirmation. What's significant about the oil of chrism is that of all the three oils, it's the only oil that the bishop can bless. I'm driving down the street tonight and I come across a car accident and I don't have my oil stocks with the oil of the sick in it and there's somebody who needs to be anointed, I can run into 7-Eleven, buy some olive oil, Google up the oil of bless the blessing of oil and bless it and I can anoint the person and they can receive the sacraments. I get home on Sunday and I've got to do a baptism and I don't have any more oil of catechumens. I can go into the kitchen and get the nicest olive oil I've got get the Book of Blessings out and I can bless it. But if at any stage I run out of the oil of chrism, I'm not allowed to do that. So once a year, in Holy Week, on Holy Thursday traditionally, sometimes translated to Tuesday, the bishop, surrounded by the priests of the diocese, blesses this oil, consecrates it. So it's linked then obviously to the rest of what we celebrate on Holy Thursday is important. And it's linked to the priesthood in particular. And the ordination of priests is quite significant. So that happens on Tuesday. Some dioceses do it, I think uh, Rome, they do it on Holy Thursday morning. It, it gets moved around a little bit, but I suppose it is integral to our understanding of what we're entering into when it comes to the Holy Thursday liturgies. How many of you have been to a Holy Thursday evening Mass? Mass of the Lord's Supper. Great. So again, this is the one I suppose I know the most about because it was the one that I went to. It was the one I served as a young man. And it was the one that really encouraged me in my own discernment and vocation. It's getting really annoying. Is it, is it annoying for you, isn't it for me? I don't think the stand's going to help. We'll try. Stand still. Stop moving. It's going to ruin my mojo. Okay, so Thursday begins the, the celebration of the true norm. So again, we remember that our churches have been... And one of the other things that happens towards the end of Lent is the covering of statues. One of the significant points at the beginning of this Mass as you come into the church, and you may never have noticed it before, but I encourage you to pay attention this week, uh, this year, is when you go in, the tabernacle of your church will be empty. And it's a, it's a, it's a practical reason at this point, but it becomes even more significant as the days progress. But you come into the church and the tabernacle's empty. Mass on Holy Thursday um, continues as, as most normal solemn masses do, except it's celebrated with greater dignity because it's Holy Thursday. So we have the Gloria. We have flowers. We have um, accompanied music. All these things that we've lost for Lent. So it's the first sign. So some people often ask you, when does Lent actually finish? It finishes with the Mass, the beginning of the Mass of Holy Thursday. Our Lenten penance has finished. Now, does that mean you come home from Holy Thursday and drink booze and um, gorge yourself? Well, the priests in the room are saying, yes, 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 you do. <laughs> this is being recorded, so no, 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 you don't. 
we've, we've entered into a new season in the church, the shortest season in the church, the Trudorum, but we're no longer in Lent. A significant point that happens during the singing of the Gloria at Lent, every young old, any boy or girl in the room who was an altar boy will remember what happens during the Gloria on Holy Thursday. We ring the bells. Very good. So, it used to be your favourite job of the year because you got an excuse to ring the bells as, as loud and as long as possible until you got halfway through and you realised they were doing the one with the Gloria that kept repeating a refrain. And like, seven minutes of ringing bells is actually a lot harder than it looks. But we ring the bells. And it's really significant because from that point on, we don't ring the bells again. So this is, this is important, and it's important, and this is one of those things where we sort of don't get it in a 1970s brick building church in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, okay? You've got a picture of sort of some French village in the 1800s, okay? Or the 1500s, where you've got no, no watches, no clocks, you've got no electricity. The church bell was the thing that regulated your day. And those of you who had the chance to be to some of these um, villages in Spain or France or anywhere in Europe really, you'll see where the, the, the steeple of the church is still the tallest building at the center of the square. And you can hear the bell throughout the entire village. But on a Holy Thursday night, it rings to signify the beginning of the celebration of the Triduum, and then it falls silent. And it remains silent for the next three days. So the thing that called people to go to work in the morning doesn't do its job. The thing that makes them stop at midday to pray and have lunch doesn't do its job. The thing that signifies the end of the day at 6pm doesn't do its job. These days stop. The world stops for three days. So how, I suppose, as Catholics can we try and in today's world, sort of replicate that in our own lives. Well, what can you do with phones or watches for the three days of Easter? The things that now regulate our days. So after the ringing of the bells during the Gloria, we had the, the reading of the Gospel, and then of course in most places, the ceremony of the washing of the feet, which um, for a large time in history in the church has been a great reminder and a symbol of the work of Christ at the Last Supper and with his apostles. So again, that really strong link in particular to the idea of the ministerial priesthood and the service that, 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 that is part of that. It also has in other parts of the world and other places uh, great connotations with charity and can be replaced by and is often replaced by other sort of symbols or works of charity. So again, that reminder that Christ and his priesthood, which we celebrate in a very particular way at the Last Supper, the institution of the Eucharist, has a, has a very, very deep connection to a life of service. It's an act that as a priest you don't actually do. I don't know, some of the young assistant priests in the room may not have done it yet. They may have been lucky enough to do it. I didn't do it for my first 
five years as a priest because I was an assistant priest. And there's only allowed to be one Holy Thursday celebration and normally the parish priest is the one who does it and he's normally the one who does this act. So I still remember the first time I had to do it and how much it um, surprised me at how much of a physical act it is. The sheer act of kneeling, washing, drying, kissing, standing, kneeling, washing, drying, kissing, standing, 12 times in a row whilst wearing an ankle-length garment. Um, it, it really struck me that this is what our Lord did and just how humbling an act it is to truly wash someone's feet. So following the washing of the feet then, we move on obviously to the celebration of the Eucharist, which ends differently to any of our other masses throughout the year. And this is, again, where we start to see something very important in our Easter ceremonies, and that is that it doesn't actually end. So for those of you who have been, you'll know that after the distribution of Holy Communion, the Blessed Sacrament is left on the altar, and all the lights in the church are extinguished. Or most of the lights in the church are extinguished. And this is again where we sort of ruin liturgy with a little bit of electricity and OHS standards. Like, because even if we want to turn all the lights off, you've still got like the green glow of the exit light above the door, just in case the 80 year old woman wants to trip over on her way out. And so, maybe this won't go on the podcast, I don't So the church is plunged into darkness and there's also no dismissal. And this is again what makes it different to almost every other mass we celebrate and that is that you're not dismissed at the end of it. The ritual specifically calls you to depart the church in silence. Which is obviously a very hard thing for people to do. You're allowed to, and people go and stay praying before the altar of repose, a shrine to the Blessed Sacrament, until midnight, not beyond midnight. So again, it's one of these times where the church really specifies, for our own spiritual good, things that we're not allowed to do. So we're allowed to keep watch in silent prayer before the Blessed Sacrament until midnight, till the end of the, the evening. And then we, we depart the church in silence. We then, of course, find ourselves in Good Friday, or on Good Friday, the church's holiest day that now has football on it. Um, interestingly enough, in other places in the world, it's not a public holiday. Um, so as much as we fight, things like the AFL and the reality is in most parts of the world people have to go to work. So my, my answer to that is, well, if you want the public holiday people, okay, take it, but respect why you've got it. If you don't want to be respectful of it, go to work, you lazy bastard. <gasps> <laughs> Sorry. It's 
We're not putting this on the podcast. <laughs> I've only had like that much beer. You really want to annoy your parish priest? Go home, or tomorrow, ring him and ask him what time Mass is on Good Friday. <laughs> Father, what time's Mass on Good Friday? And then really annoy him by walking out after the three o'clock service and saying, that was a lovely Mass, Father, thank you. <laughs> Why? Because we don't actually celebrate Mass on Good Friday. It is the one day in the church's year where mass is prohibited. We are not allowed to celebrate the sacrament of mass. In fact, all of the sacraments of it, you are not allowed to get married on Good Friday. We're not allowed to do baptisms on Good Friday unless it's an emergency. We strive not to do anointings of the sick on Good Friday unless it's an emergency. So again, we're, we're reminded on this day, and this is one of these Catholic sort of things that we do quite regularly, this balance between we, we know that it's not really Good Friday, but we pretend that it is Good Friday. We sort of, we, we try to trick ourselves to a certain degree to really enter into it by refraining from certain things that we know are a result of Good Friday the Mass, the celebration of the sacraments. Unless there's a really grave part of me, unless someone's really dying, then, if you know what I mean, like we're not, we don't, we don't refrain from giving the sacraments. But we don't do it with unwillingly or unnecessarily. So our churches are, are bare and this is the other instruction that happens, and it normally happens after you've left the church on Good Friday, on Holy Thursday evening, is the instruction clearly says that everything is stripped out of your churches. Now again, this is where um, 1960s brutalist, modernist architecture doesn't really help because some of our churches are pretty bare to begin with. Um, but it's amazing because I'm in a pretty modern church, but it is still amazing walking into what is a pretty bare and sort of ugly church in the, when you've got nice things in it to remove all of that stuff and actually see even much how bare it is. All the cloths, all the statues, all the candles, whatever flowers you put in on Thursday night, everything is taken out. And there's no liturgies. There's nothing, there's nothing for Good Friday morning. So every other church throughout the world, every other day, 9.15, morning mass, no, nothing. The church should be open, and hopefully it is open. And generally you might come and pray the Stations of the Cross, which aren't part of the Triduum. They're a devotion and a very good one to be part of. But um, otherwise you come into an empty, bare church. Tabernacle empty, statues covered, cross covered, no flowers, nothing. And it stays that way until three o'clock. And in a continuation of what had happened the night before, the three o'clock ceremony starts in silence. 
no entrance in, no introduction. The priests enter in silence. And there should be a real stark contrast in that to any other celebration that we, we gather for. And then the first thing they do is they lay prostrate on the floor of the sanctuary. So again, a real sign of that link between the priest and the person of Jesus Christ and the laying down of the life in the service of the church, his bride, the priest lays face down. The other time, of course, he does this is on the day of his ordination. This is the one time that we can maybe be grateful for modernist architecture because at least if you're on the carpet, it's not as cold as marble. Um, but again, it is still a very humbling act. And at that point, the rest of the congregation are called to kneel and pray. And I think, especially at this time in the church, in Australia and in the world, I think this Good Friday in particular, praying for our priests, praying for our leaders, praying for our bishops, praying for the Holy Father. Um, at that moment of the liturgy, if, if I can make one request for you, it would be at that moment that, that your priests be good and holy, faithful servants of the Lord. So then the priest goes to his place. He says the opening prayer. We listen to the readings. And then, of course, and this is where the centre of our liturgy on Good Friday is very different to anything else because we have the solemn, the solemn reading of the Passion. And it's long, and we stand there, and we stand there, and we stand there, and it's the same one each year, and we keep standing there. But then we kneel. So we kneel at the, at the moment of the crucifixion or at the moment that Jesus dies on the cross in reverence. And this becomes the centre point of our liturgy. Remembering that at our, our Masses, we kneel at the Eucharist. But on Good Friday, we kneel in silence and pause to recall the death of Christ. Following the reading of the Passion, it's a little bit like Palm Sunday, two days of the year where the church gives a very strict instruction to the priest about his homily. And it says, a short homily may be given. <laughs> Palm Sunday and Good Friday. So you can remind your priest of that. When you ask him what time Mass is, to so say, because I'd like you to give me a short homily, please. We then move on to the, the, the intercessions, the solemn intercessions. And this is, again, something that we see in a, a briefer form every Sunday at our Mass, our prayers of the faithful. On a Good Friday, on this central day of the church's year, we celebrate in the most solemn form and we pray for all of our intentions. And our intentions take a, a very, a very uh, logical and uh, sort of ordered progression where we pray for the needs of the world, we pray for the needs of the church, we pray for those who are preparing to be Catholics, we pray for those other Christians, we pray for those who aren't other Christians but are the, are the, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and then we pray for those people who have no faith whatsoever. So we work our way through on this most solemn day, praying to the Lord for all of our needs and for the world. 
Then, of course, comes the, the, the showing of the cross. And again, picturing your stark, empty church with nothing in it. And from the back of the church, the priest or the deacon processes in the cross. And three times proclaims, and this becomes important our following night, Behold the wood of the cross on which hung the Saviour of the world. And we respond, Come, let us adore. And kneel. An interesting instruction for Good Friday is that from that point on, for the rest of Good Friday and for Easter Saturday, whilst the cross stays in Holy Saturday, while the cross stays in the centre of the sanctuary, we reverence it with a genuflection. It's the only time in our year, that sort of 24-hour period, where we genuflect to anything apart from the tabernacle. As Catholics, we bow to statues or we, we, we pray before statues, but we don't genuflect because they're just statues. We, we bow to things on the altar. We bow before reading the gospel. We bow if we're passing the altar whilst during Mass. But we only reserve a genuflection to the real presence of the tabernacle except on Good Friday. But the cross which has taken pride of place in our sanctuary and remains there gets this act of our highest reverence. So following the, um, the showing of the cross, the veneration of the cross, we then receive Holy Communion, which of course was consecrated the night before at the Holy Thursday Mass. So sometimes it's a little bit of a, um, uh, a mathematical sort of act for the priest to try and work out on Thursday night how many people he knows he's going to have um, for Thursday night and Good Friday. The reception of Holy Communion on Good Friday hasn't always been part of the celebration and I'm not quite sure one of the other priests in the room might be able to tell me at the break. Um, when it actually was reintroduced. But again, this is one of those acts that we reintroduce the reception of Holy Communion on Good Friday because we still believe in the, the grace and the value of the reception of Holy Communion every day, even though we're not celebrating Mass on Good Friday. And then following the Mass, people are invited to come forward and venerate the cross. Oh, I've just done it myself. Following the three o'clock, the Passion, people are invited to come forward and venerate the cross with a kiss or a touch or a bow. Again, a very significant act because it's the one day of the year that everybody in the church, no matter who you are, or no matter what you've done, no matter where you are in your faith, are invited to come forward to the altar. This day and Ash Wednesday, two days in the year. The beginning of Lent and the end. Everybody, saint, sinner, Catholic, non-Catholic, you're invited to come forward and to reverence the cross. To show your respect, your love, your appreciation, your devotion. The ceremony finishes, of course, in silence. So you are, you are asked to leave the church in silence. A reminder that we are still in the continuation of one ongoing liturgical celebration. And the rest of that day, of course, as a day of fasting and abstinence, should be a day marked by that kind of reverence. 
It should really be a day of retreat. So again, we enter into the second night then of our Easter Triduum without bells, without music, without television, without football. And we, we enter, as it were, with the apostles and with the Blessed Mother into this, this day of mourning, Holy Saturday, where again, our churches remain empty. No decorations, no candles, no flowers, no mass, nothing. Standing in the, in the centre of our church remains the, the sign of the crucifixion, the cross. Our Lord is dead. And that's how our churches remain for the entirety of that day. Again, no other sacraments to be celebrated. I suppose the only thing that would generally happen in churches is a, a, a great swathe of volunteers spend most of Holy Saturday preparing for the vigil because it's our most difficult and most um, elaborate celebration of the year that generally takes most of the day. But the day is generally marked by, by again, a silent reverence. Then we move into, of course, the, the most holiest celebration of our churches here. How many of you have actually been to an Easter vigil? It's long. It's long and it has really four parts. The first is the... Is the, is the um, the ritual of light outside the church. So again, picture yourself in that small Spanish village 500 years ago. It's been dark and quiet for days. There's been no bells. Nothing else is open. Nothing is on. And they light this massive bonfire outside the church. And this is, this is, where, um, this is where it all begins again. With the blessing of the fire followed by the blessing of the Paschal Candle. The Paschal Candle takes pride of place following this ceremony in our church and is used throughout the year to, to mark two primary occasions, the baptism of children and it stands at the head of a coffin at funerals. So I give this um, talk to my parishioners each year and I say to them, without trying to be too morbid, you don't know what the next 365 days are going to bring. It may bring the baptism of one of your children, which might be a surprise to most of you. It'd be a surprise to the 80-year-old women from my parish as well. <laughs> but it may also stand at the head of your coffin or the coffin of someone that you love, a member of your family or friend. So if you can be there on Holy Saturday and be present at the blessing of the Paschal Candle, I think there's a, a really important part of being present at the beginning of a new church year. It's quite a, um, it's a, quite a beautiful ceremony that fills most priests 
with a bit of um, fear and awe because um, as a young seminarian you spend it at the cathedral and they've got thousands of servers and seminarians and sacristans and everyone generally at a priest it's as a priest in a parish it's you and like three 12 year old altar boys and you've got a fire and you've got a candle and you've got thousands of other candles and it very rarely goes goes to plan but after the blessing of the the fire and the blessing of the candle the candle is then carried into the darkened church and remember that our church has been dark for three days since holy thursday evening when the lights were extinguished they weren't turned back on no candles and remember this is before electricity and ohs and things like that so it was actually dark the world was dark and we carry this depending on how big your candle is mine's Six foot, I think? No, no, six foot, that'd be too big, no. Four foot, three foot, maybe, it's about. And three times, so um, replicating what we've done on Good Friday, three times it is held aloft in the church and proclaimed Christ our light. And we reply, thanks be to God. So behold the wood of the cross is replaced by Christ our light. So it's carried in, and from the candle, each member of the congregation lights their own candle. So in what is the most beautiful of ceremonies, we all stand in our darkened churches, and the, the, the Mass is not allowed to start before sunset. So we stand in the dark, by the light of Christ, all holding the light of Christ. Whilst our priest then stands up there and absolutely destroys the singing of the exalted, <laughs> which is a 10 minute, once a year, horror piece of music <laughs> that the priest is supposed to sing on his own, unaccompanied, in the dark, holding a candle whilst managing a, a bevy of altar boys who've got no idea what they're doing because it's dark and they're holding candles and I get someone else to do it. <laughs> but again, this, this beautiful prayer, again, it's where the church, yeah, it's beautiful, but it's just a, a pain to do. But anyway, it's a beautiful prayer um, that outlines for us and it's, it's like a hymn to the candle, a hymn to the light of Christ. And again, I'd encourage you, if, you, if you've got nothing else to do on Good Friday and Holy Saturday, because you've got nothing else to do, because it's Good Friday and Holy Saturday, <laughs> Google this prayer, the Exalted, and read through it as part of your meditation of preparation for Easter. So then following the Exalted, we have the readings. And we go through the church's um, the history of salvation in anywhere between four and seven readings depending on how devout or crazy your parish priest is Holy Family Mount Waverley we go straight down the middle you know, five <laughs> and they're interrupted with the singing of the Gloria and what do we do for the first time that we haven't done for three days the ringing of the church bells. And again, we're not just 
the the little handbells at the altar serve, but it can picture the bell tower of the of the village. So all the pagans who aren't in the church, well, they know it's Easter, whether they like it or not. Then we have a New Testament reading, and then we sing the Alleluia for the first time since the beginning of Lent. And throughout Lent, as we've had feast days and solemnities, we've had the Gloria, and we've had a few flowers here and there, but the one thing that we don't do for the entire time, unless your choir forgets and they throw it in there on the third Sunday of Lent, is we haven't had an Alleluia. So it's sung with extra gusto. And at this point, every light, sorry, during the Gloria actually, so just before this, every light, every candle is lit in the church. And again, this is where electricity has destroyed the, the romance because most churches like mine are uh, filled with fluorescent light. So rather than this sort of, if you go to the cathedral, this is the one moment if you're going to go to the cathedral for, they've got this wonderful lighting system. So when the Gloria starts, they hit one button and every light comes on at once. But if you come to Holy Family Mount Waverley, <laughs> And many of your parish churches, the sacristy is like this patch board of light switches. And now you go all the way down here and then all the way across the side. And one guy is standing there in the dark. <laughs> and, and then out in the church, they're going click, 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 click. And sort of sometime by the Eucharistic prayer, they've warmed up and all the lines on. But again, you can see the beauty of it when, it when we can do it beautifully, if you know what I mean. And at the same time, every piece of brass and every candlestick and every flower pot and every beautiful vestment and everything that has been hidden for 40 days has been returned to the church. And you see it in all its glory, in the light of Christ. And then he gives you a boring homily. And then in the most important ceremony of our churches here, at the centre of our liturgical life, what is it that we do? What is it that we as Christians, as Catholics, put in at the very heart of our liturgy? Why did all of this happen? Did he die and rise again? We do baptisms. We celebrate the reception of people into our faith. Children, adults, they're received into the Christian faith at the, at the very heart of our liturgy. And they're normally surrounded by people who don't have faith. They bring all of their friends and they've just sat through an hour and a half of lights and candles and readings. And so it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a show, but this is our high point. And in what can only be seen as a, a, a moment of masochism, from the church on her priests. At the heart of the ceremony, we are, we are called to pray the blessing over the new holy water. And you're supposed to sing it again, if you've got anything left after the first attempt. And whilst you're singing it, somehow you're supposed to get this three-foot burning candle that's been burning for an hour and 20 minutes now out of its stand and plunge it three times into a 
the holy water font and hold it there whilst you don't miss a miss a note of the, of the prayer and you don't burn the altar boy who's standing next to you. Like, so I say, go to the cathedral. Like, they've got deacons and, and it all happens beautifully. But there is this real beautiful symbolism that our, the holy water for baptism is blessed with the candle, the light of Christ, the sign of the resurrection. And that is the holy water that is used for the rest of the Easter season. Again, traditionally, you would have blessed holy water at Easter for the entire year, but that's become a little hard to do, a little impractical. So we, we bless it. But in particular for the Easter season, we use this great symbol of, of the resurrection for the blessing of holy water. And then after the baptisms, you're all sprinkled with that same holy water after you've had an opportunity to renew your own baptismal promises, standing in the light of Christ. And then, then we get to the liturgy of the Eucharist, and normally that's like, oh, I know this bit. Like, it's, it's just mass from this point on. Like, there's no more, no more tricky bits. Um, but in, in what I often find the most beautiful point of the Easter ceremony is at the end of the reception of Holy Communion is the returning of the Blessed Sacrament to the tabernacle. And the one light that hasn't been lit at the Gloria with every other light is the red lamp next to the tabernacle. And it's, it's my great privilege each year at the end of the church's holiest celebration to relight the tabernacle lamp next to the tabernacle. That, that one reminder, that one light that never goes out, that reminds us that Christ is, Christ is alive and truly present here in our church each and every day. And that his grace is available to us if, if we come and ask for it. So the Blessed Sacrament is restored to the tabernacle and the tabernacle of every church around the world. And then we finish with the final indignity of the entire Easter ceremonies, and that is the Easter dismissal. So if you got through the exalted, okay, and then you warbled your way through the baptismal rite, okay, and then they want you to sing the preface before communion. Then at the very end of Mass, when you've got no voice left whatsoever, you're expected to give the Easter dismissal, which again, is something you sing once a year or maybe twice at Pentecost as well. Go in the peace of Christ, alleluia, alleluia. And everybody responds, well, they generally laugh and then they sort of laugh their way through, thanks be to God, alleluia, alleluia. And then we, we go and we celebrate. And at that point, the church encourages us to, to break our Easter fast. Don't wait any longer. And if you've just worked your way through all of those liturgies, you deserve a beer and something to eat. But we also remember, you're then invited back on Easter Sunday. You don't have to go on Easter Sunday. If you've worked your way through the Easter Vigil, that's it. But the Easter Sunday Masses are a different Mass. It's a new Mass, a new set of readings. So come back one more time. And if that's not enough for you, the Church then celebrates the next seven days, the Easter Octave, through to the next Sunday 
for eight days in its entirety with the same joy and the same solemnity, a little bit less singing, as Easter Sunday. Every Mass, every day, for the week after Easter, you get the Gloria, you get the Creed, you get the Easter prayers. Every day for eight days is like Easter Sunday. Not to mention the Easter season then continues. But as Christians, we're, we, we can celebrate and we should celebrate just as much as we do our penance and our hardships. I'm just going to finish with something from Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, who wrote on the Easter liturgies a number of years ago. My dear brothers and sisters, during these special days, let us guide our lives definitively towards a complete and decisive adherence to the designs of our celestial Father. Let us renew our yes to the divine will as Jesus did with his sacrifice on the cross. The rites suggested for Holy Thursday and Good Friday, the rich silence and prayer of Holy Saturday and the solemn Easter Vigil provides us with the opportunity to deepen the feelings and values of our Christian vocation unleashed by the Paschal mystery and to strengthen it by faithfully following Christ in all circumstances, just as he did, even to the point of giving up our own existence to him. Remembering the mysteries of Christ also means a willing and complete adherence to the history of today, convinced that when we celebrate, it is reality. Let us include in our prayers the terrible facts and situations that afflict our brothers across the world. We know that hate and division and violence never have the last word in historical events. These holy days reawaken a great hope in us. Christ was crucified, yet he rose again and conquered the world. Love is stronger than hate. It has triumphed and we should affiliate ourselves with this victory of love. We should therefore start again from Christ and work together with him for a world founded on peace, justice and love. In this commitment that involves all of us, let us, let us allow ourselves to be guided by Mary, who accompanied her divine son on the road to his passion and cross, and who participated with the strength of her faith in the realisation of his plan of salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Thanks very much.